From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Processing delays at the National Finance Center are holding up final annuity payments for months for recently retired federal employees. Customs and Border Protection's one agency warning its employees to be prepared to wait as long as three months for NFC to submit paperwork to the Office of Personnel Management. Federal News Network reports some employees may wait as long as a year for the full annuity payments the government owes them. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has personnel on the border with Mexico tonight. President Biden put the agency in charge of the effort to address migrant children crossing the border from Central America. GovExec reports FEMA will work with the Department of Health and Human Services to provide places for the children to stay. Two Coast Guard cutters will get what the force is calling underway Wi-Fi in a pilot program this year. Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Carl Schultz says his service will replace desktops in command posts with tablets as part of a technology upgrade. FedScoop reports the Guard will modernize financial management systems and other legacy applications in the coming years. The Government Accountability Office's newest high-risk list shows improvement in seven areas, but strategic human capital management is one of the areas that's backsliding. Chris Mim is Managing Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Chris, you've been involved in the high-risk list for a long, long time. Why is human capital management getting worse instead of getting better? Yeah, Fr Francis, it's it's great to be with you. There's a, a couple of big challenges that they had this time. It's Human capital went back in the leadership criteria. For 18 of the last 24 months, OPM had an acting director, and so they didn't have that top-level leadership that they needed. At least as important, OPM last year in 2020 suspended the annual human capital reviews. Now, these are the, the meetings that are held at the very highest level of OPM and with the agencies to talk strategically about the human capital challenges in each of the major agencies. They need to get back on track on that. It's understandable why they suspended those because of the, the, the COVID crisis and the need to respond to that. They need to get back onto those to make sure that they have those strategic discussions that are really ad addressing, identifying and addressing the challenges in each individual agency. I understand what you're saying about strategic human capital management at the broad enterprise-wide level, Chris. What I think was maybe more troubling is that as you dig into the 30 whatever there are uh, items on the high risk list, there are human capital problems, there are people problems in a large number of those as well that maybe don't manifest themselves as human capital problems, but really are at the core. Is that a fair read on my part? Well, absolutely, that's a fair read. There are 36 issues on the on the high risk list, one of which is uh, the government wide skills gap issue. Um, 22 of the other 35 areas, the remaining 35 areas, a, a human capital issue, critical skills gap is a root cause of the, the problem behind that high risk issue. And among those, many of those are an absence of good workforce planning that needs to take place. And so that's why those human capital reviews are, are so important to make sure that we have alignment between agency goals and outcomes, the program outcomes that they're trying to achieve and the people strategies that are in place. But until we address these both government wide and individual agency human capital issues, we're not going to make progress overall on the high-risk list. Are those issues that can be addressed separately, can one agency say, we get what the problem is and we need to take care of it right now, can they do that in a silo or do they also need the enterprise-wide 
changes, reforms, improvements that you're proposing that OPM undertake? There's plenty of opportunities for both. That is, you know, fundamentally, each agency owns its own critical skills gap and its own workforce. So the primary responsibility is within those agencies. And so, for example, one of the issues on the high risk list is uh, um, the Food and Drug Administration's inspection of foreign drug ma drug manufacturing decreased in recent years, and in part because they didn't have the people with the right skills to undertake those those inspections. Um, likewise, uh, you know, the drug misuse is is on the high risk list. And there's an absence or a lack of, of qualified medical personnel um, to deal with drug abuse in, in many areas. And so those are owned by the individual agencies. Notwithstanding that, there is work that OPM can do to make sure that there's agencies have the tools and the authorities, the flexibilities, and sharing good practice across the federal government that each of the agencies can use in order to address their own individual issues. It strikes me that OPM is at a, a very interesting and fortuitous time in its history because there is now a lot of confidence about what the agency is going to look like structurally moving forward. Nobody thinks that anybody will try to do anything uh, structurally with OPM in this administration. So for four years, OPM is going to be what it is. It will get new leadership as soon as the Senate confirms that new leadership uh, on, uh, to a number of positions. What would you like to see the agency be or what would you like to see the agency represent maybe two years from now, Chris? to try to achieve what you're proposing that it should try to achieve? That's a, that's a great question. There's a, there's a couple of things that are in the sense of the, the low-hanging fruit, as it were, for, for OPM. First is to restart the human capital reviews and make sure that we're having those strategic discussions between agency leadership and OPM. Now, the meetings themselves are the le least important part of that. It's more what they actually represent, and that is making sure that, we again, we have that alignment between the program goals and the workforce strategies within, within the agencies. The second thing that they need to do is make sure that the, the overall personnel system within the federal government. That is the, the GS system, the classification system is really fit for purpose for the, the, the modern world. And, and there's been plenty of reviews that have been done, certainly by the GAO, the Partnership for Public Service, the National Academy of Public Administration, that have really shown that you know our, our federal systems and processes and way in which we structure work and recruit and compensate just aren't relevant and, and fit for purpose for the, the, the current workforce and current workforce needs that we have today. And third, there's an opportunity for OPM to go through just the multitude of hiring authorities that are out there that agencies are using, help them help the agencies identify which are the ones that are that are, are best and most appropriate given a particular need, um, and make sure that the agencies have the, the tools and the knowledge in order to to execute on those authorities. Those are just some of the lowest of the hanging fruit. There's plenty of other things that OPM could be doing though. What what are the most uh, the, the, a lot of those things that you just listed though, Chris, are tremendously important. Are there some that are the most important of all the importance? Are, you know, are there are there uh, are there ones that stand out among the most important things? I think there's the, the of those the the two of them are the uh, the human capital reviews or or the the philosophy behind those reviews and then making sure that our 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 uh, classification system, the GS system, is actually fit for, for the the type of work that we're doing today, the type of work in which we're recruiting people into government to do. Chris Mim, thanks very much as always. It's my great pleasure, sir. Thank you. You can find a link to the high-risk list at govmatters.tv resources. Up next, a people-centered approach to national security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how focusing on building American strengths can throw off our adversaries. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the new stimulus bill is the cornerstone for the administration's national security strategy. That strategy is starting to take shape already with the release of the administration's national security strategic guidance recently. Sharon Burke is senior advisor at New America. She's former assistant secretary of defense for operational energy plans and programs, writing about national security for the Boston Globe. Sharon, your input is always uh, welcome and valuable because you have not just a Defense Department perspective, but a State Department perspective and experience as well. And you write in this piece in the Globe uh, referencing Secretary of State Blinken saying, my job is to deliver for you. Why was that comment significant that you wanted to mention that in your piece? Well, now to be fair, as you say, having worked at the Pentagon and the State Department as a civil servant, and as a, as a political appointee, I just want to make it clear that diplomats are, have always been working for the American people. And I think when you're a public servant, you know, anyone who chooses to be a public servant is well aware of that. That's never, that's never changed. However, what, what Secretary Blinken said, that this is about benefiting the middle class, and he went through all of his priorities systematically, and each time said, you know, the big picture, this is about freedom, this is about diversification, and then said, and here's how it benefits the American people, and specifically the middle class. That's new, to, to justify everything of, about exactly what's the return on investment for the American people. What's the significance of that in the scope of what the Biden administration has undertaken, security-wise and diplomacy-wise, so far? I think, again, when you have to justify everything you're doing, every dollar you're spending, on what's the return in safety and prosperity for Americans, you know, that's a, that's a pretty uh, strong rubric. And um, I think, you know, historically, we've always seen when you're in this, in this national security foreign policy community, that there's a tension between our values and our interests. And what, what especially Secretary Blinken made clear is that they're not gonna accept that there's a difference. Everything is the same. How does it benefit people? So I think you'll see them every time they're talking about something they're doing, they're going to justify why. And I do hope that that means that foreign policy resonates more with the American public than maybe it has in the past. You attach a name to something that I have detected as a theme since January 20th at noon, and that is, and you put it this way, leading with diplomacy and diminishing the defense stranglehold on national security policy. Is this something we should expect to see more prominently over the next three and a half or four years? The State Department, maybe not taking precedence over the Defense Department, but certainly rising to the level of a peer. Well, technically in law, the State Department does take precedence over the Defense Department. The Secretary of State is, you know, the first among equals and has charge over what is the policy of the United States. Uh, the Defense Department does not have the lead on what the policy is. That's gotten out of balance in increasingly over many, many decades now. Because the Def Department of Defense has such a large budget and has such a strong, compelling mission, um, and it's a command and control arrangement, and also has a lot of support from the American people, very strong domestic constituencies, increasingly, I think presidents have used the military as the main instrument. But it was never meant to be that way. It was always meant for the Secretary of State to lead. And this president has made it clear that he's going to restore that. And I think it's really important because it comes back to what's the source of American strength? You know, the military means and ways 
those are not the source of strength. Those are an expression of our strength. So it's better to concentrate on what actually makes us strong, not just on the military. And one of the things that you write about to that end in this piece is the idea of building American strength for the sake of building American strength rather than reacting to threats, especially from China and Russia. Absolutely. And I think we've gotten away from that. Like what makes us better, not how do we you know, counter them and what they're doing? You know, if China has a belt and road, what's our belt and road? You know, it should never be that way. It should always be about what makes us different, what makes us better, because I genuinely believe that we have a better way of living. So what are those foundational strengths and where have we gotten away from it? So innovation, you know, there's no question that we're an innovative country that provides opportunity for everyone to be innovative and for people to come here and bring their talents and be innovative. We're, we're great at that. We should be playing to that strength and investing in it. Um, immigration, diversification, the fact that, again, we our strengths become, our, our differences become a strength has historically been one of the things that distinguishes us where other countries can't say that that's the case. So that, you know, trust, the fact that we have transparency and rule of law means that we're a trusted country. We've moved away from that. These are the things that make us better. We should be building those foundations, not just looking at how do we counter what they're doing. Uh, we'll always we do that. Viewer, bear with me because Sharon turns a delightful phrase here toward the end of this piece. The Biden administration's people-centric approach may offer an all-purpose justification for situational pragmatism. That sounds suspiciously like a more polite version of America first. That's not necessarily a bad thing, is it, Sharon? It's not necessarily a bad thing. You know what? I think the problem always with America first, which, by the way, it's always been America first. Every president puts the interests of the American people first. The question is, how do you do that? And if your entire phrase stops there, then you're not putting America first at all. You're not putting the American people first. So the question is, you know, I, when I said situational pragmatism, I actually mean it as a compliment, which is we need to look at the world as, as it is, look at how we want our country to be, and reconcile those things, right? And that means be practical, be principled, um, but also how exactly do you put America first? And it can never mean America alone. We need to be able to collaborate with other countries to find where our shared interests are if we're going to be strong enough to put the country first and move it ahead. Aaron Burke, thanks very much. As always, great to have you on. Thank you. Great to be with you. You can find a link to Sharon's piece in the Boston Globe, govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the F-35's problems getting off the ground. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the aircraft's rollout means for the Defense Department. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The F-35 program is taking fire from Congress. The chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, says the Defense Department should, quote, cut its losses on the plane 
and look at other platforms. The program's an example of what's wrong with weapons buying, according to Sean McFate, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, professor at the National Defense University and Georgetown, and author of The New Rules of War, How America Can Win Against Russia, China, and Other Threats. He's writing about the F-35 in the Hill newspaper. Sean, thanks very much for coming on the program. Your argument against the F-35 is vehement and detailed, and I invite viewers to read it. We'll put a link at govmatters.tv resources. But the title of your piece is The F-35 Tells Everything That's Broken in the Pentagon. What all is broken, in your view, in weapons buying inside DOD? Well, the F-35 is just the hood ornament to a much bigger problem. I mean, we all know the problems of the, the Pentagon's you know, contracts are always over time, always over budget. But there's even a bigger problem. We're buying weapons to win last century's wars. We don't even need these new super weapons like F-35s, Ford-class carriers, other things that don't go to war anymore. And the measure of any weapon system is its utility. How useful. So if weapons don't go to war, let's replace them with weapons that are useful. You use a term in this piece that I think is interesting and, and deserves uh, some attention. You write, something is wrong with our strategic IQ and it's not something the F-35 can fix. Define the term strategic IQ and why we're deficient. Yeah, so if we're honest with ourselves. The U.S. military, even though it's the best military in the world, has not won a big war since 1945. And we're losing to like North, you know, North Vietnam, Taliban, Al-Qaeda. That's not very popular to say, but the evidence is overwhelming. And it's not because we do have the best troops, training and equipment, but our strategic IQ, how we use them, our strategies are hopelessly outdated. So we win all, we win every battle, but we lose the war because we've forgotten how to how to be strategists. How, how is that strategic IQ outdated, and how do we recover it? How do we bring it up to 2021 and and actually take it to 2030 and 2050? <laughs> right. So. United States of America has something I call victor's curse. You've heard the adage that generals always fight the last war, especially if they won it. That is victor's curse. You know, France had it after World War I. They thought the future of war would be trench warfare after they successfully won World War I, so they built a Maginot Line. Meanwhile, Germany evolved its way of warfare and easily outflanked it. The F-35 is our Maginot line. We're still fighting. We think the future of war will be World War II with better technology. We think that you know, China and America war will be like the Battle of Midway in the South China Sea with F-35s, Ford-class carriers, and very expensive drones. And warfare has already moved past that. Our enemies are using disinformation, weapons that give them plausible deniability. They're using things like China does the Belt Road Initiative, which is a, a national security initiative. There are new ways to fight and win wars, just like the Blitzkrieg you know, made sort of trench warfare obsolete, other things are happening. And I write about this in my book, The New Rules of War. In fact, they say here are 10 new rules or principles about how to fight and how to win in this new type of warfare in the 21st century. Um, and it's, it's looking at how our adversaries, China, Russia, Iran, others, are using these you know, rules right now. One of the terms that you use to describe what's coming is information overmatch. Is that just cyber, uh, uh, cyber war and, and using data, or is there more to it than that? 
there's more to it. I mean, one of the unfortunate things about national security community in DC is that we conflate cyber with information. Those are two different things. Cyber is just a venue for information, just like radio, TV. These are all vectors of information. Information as a whole, strategic deception, the war of Sun Tzu, not the war of CrossFits, that's what's taking charge in the world right now because we live in an information age. So now, you know, WMDs are no longer nuclear weapons. There are are things like disinformation, how, you know, our adversaries are trying to to infiltrate, if you will, our media trying to go using disinformation to tear. So we tear ourselves apart from within. And that is a new weapon of war. It's not low. Some of the best weapons today do not shoot bullets. And that's one of the lessons that we have to internalize to increase our strategic IQ. We have about a minute left, Sean, and there's one other item I want to ask you about. You write another thing that we need is the ability to fight wars beneath the threshold of war. What does that mean? Well, we think in the United States, we think of war like pregnancy. You either are or you're not. But in reality, war is like a continual spectrum. Uh, and you're not really exactly at war or not. And our cold warriors out there will remember this. A cold war was not just a metaphor. It was a real war. The, but today, we just think about it as, are we at war or as, are we at peace? And our adversaries manipulate this against us. They wage war but disguise it as peace because they operate beneath our internally decided threshold of war. And that's a false dichotomy of war and peace. The truth is there's no such thing as war or peace, it's war and peace. And we have to think like that. Sean McFate, thank you very much for joining me. Great peace. Thank you very much. You can find a link to it at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business and government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.